Chapter Two of A Little Bush Maid by Mary Grant Bruce. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Bologna Times. Chapter Two Pets and Playthings. After her father, Nora's chief companions were her pets. These were a numerous and varied band, and required no small amount of attention. Bobs, of course, came first. No other animal could possibly approach him in favor, but after Bobs came a long procession, beginning with Tate the collie, and ending with the last brood of fluffy Orpington chicks, or perhaps the newest thing in disabled birds picked up fluttering and helpless in the yard or orchard. There was room in Nora's heart for them all. Tate was a beauty, a rough-haired collie with a splendid head and big, faithful brown eyes that spoke more eloquently than many persons' tongues. He was, like most of the breed, ready to be friends with anyone, but his little mistress was dearest of all, and he worshipped her with abject devotion. Nora never went anywhere without him. Tate saw to that. He seemed always on the watch for her coming, and she was never more than a few yards from the house before the big dog was silently brushing the grass by her side. His greatest joy was to follow her on long rides into the bush, putting up an occasional hare and scurrying after it in the futile way of collies, barking at the swallows overhead and keeping pace with Bob's long, easy canter. Puck used to come on these excursions, too. He was the only being for whom it was suspected that Tate felt a mild dislike, an impudent Irish terrier, full of fun and mischief, yet with a somewhat unfriendly and suspicious temperament that made him, perhaps, a better guardian for Nora than the benevolently disposed Tate. Puck had a nasty, inquiring mind, an unpleasant way of sniffing round the legs of tramps that generally induced those gentry to find the top rail of a fence a more calm and more desirable spot than the level of the ground. Indian hawkers feared him and hated him in equal measure. He could bite, and occasionally did bite, his victims, being always selected with judgment and discretion, generally vagrants emboldened to insolence by seeing no men about the kitchen when all hands were out mustering or busy on the run. When Puck bit, it was with no uncertain tooth. He was suspected of a desire to taste the blood of everyone who went near Nora, though his cannibalistic propensities were curbed by stern discipline. Only once had he anything like a free hand, or a free tooth. Nora was out riding, a good way from the homestead, when a particularly unpleasant-looking fellow accosted her and asked her for money. Nora stared. "'I haven't got any,' she said. "'Anyhow, father doesn't let us give away money to travellers, only Tucker.' "'Oh, doesn't he?' the fellow said unpleasantly. "'Well, I want money, not grub.' He laid a compelling hand on Bob's bridle as Nora tried to pass him. "'Come,' he said. "'That bracelet'll do.' It was a pretty little gold watch, set in a leather bangle, father's birthday present, only a few weeks old. Nora simply laughed. She scarcely comprehended so amazing a thing as that this man should really intend to rob her. "'Get out of my way,' she said. "'You can't have that.' 
can't I? He caught her wrist. Give it quietly now, or I'll... The sentence was not completed. A yellow streak hurled itself through the air as Puck, who had been investigating a tussock for lizards, awoke to this situation. Something like a vice gripped the swagman by the leg, and he dropped Nora's wrist and bridle and roared like any bull. The something hung on fiercely, silently, and the victim hopped and raved and begged for mercy. Nora had ridden a little way on. She called softly to Puck. "'Here, boy!' Puck did not relinquish his grip. He looked pleadingly at his little mistress across the swagman's trouser leg. Nora struck her saddle sharply with her whip. "'Here, sir! Drop it!' Puck dropped it reluctantly and came across to Bob's, his head hanging. The swagman sat down on the ground and nursed his leg. "'That served you right,' Nora said with judicial severity. "'You hadn't any business to grab my watch. Now, if you'll go up to the house, they'll give you some tucker and a rag for your leg.' She rode off, whistling to Puck. The swagman gaped and muttered various remarks. He did not call at the house. Nora was supposed to manage the fowls, but her management was almost entirely ornamental, and it is to be feared that the poultry-yard would have fared but poorly had it depended upon her alone. All the fowls were hers. She said so, and no one contradicted her. Still, whenever one was wanted for the table, it was ruthlessly slain, and it was Black Billy who fed them night and morning, and Mrs. Brown who gathered the eggs, and saw that the houses were safely shut against the foxes every evening. Nora's chief part in the management lay in looking after the setting hens. At first she firmly checked the broody instincts by shutting them callously under boxes, despite pecks and loud protests. Later, when their mood refused to change, she would love to prepare them soft nests in boxes, and to imprison them there until they took kindly to their seclusion. Then it was hard work to wait three weeks until the first fluffy heads peeped out from the angry mother's wing, after which Nora was a blissfully adoring caretaker until the downy balls began to get ragged as the first wing and tail feathers showed. Then the chicks became uninteresting, and were handed over to Black Billy. Besides her own pets, there were Jim's. "'Mine, they're in your care,' Jim had said sternly, on the evening before his departure for school. They were making a tour of the place, Jim outwardly very cheerful and unconcerned. Nora plunged in woe. She did not attempt to conceal it. She had taken Jim's arm, and it was sufficient proof of his state of mind that he did not shake it off. Indeed, the indications were that he was glad of the loving little hand tucked into the bend of his arm. "'Yes, Jim, I'll look after them.' "'I don't want you to bother feeding them yourself,' Jim said magnanimously. "'That'd be rather too much of a contract for a kid, wouldn't it? Only keep an eye on him, and round up Billy if he doesn't do his work. He's a terror if he shirks, and unless you watch him like a cat, he'll never change the water in the tins every morning. Lots of times I've had to do it myself. I'd do it myself sooner and let him go without, Jim, dear, said the small voice, with a suspicion of a choke. Don't you do it, said Jim. Slang Billy. What's he here for? I'd like to know. I only want you to go round him every day and see that they're all right. So daily, 
Nora used to make her pilgrimage round Jim's pets. There were the guinea pigs, a rapidly increasing band in an enclosure specially built for them by Jim, a light frame netted carefully everywhere, and so constructed that it could be moved from place to place, giving them a fresh grass run continually. Then there were two young wallabies and a little brush kangaroo, which lived in a little paddock all their own, and were as tame as kittens. Nora loved this trio especially, and always had a game with them on her daily visit. There was a shy gentleman which Nora called a turloise, because she never could remember if he were a turtle or a tortoise. He lived in a small enclosure with a tiny water-hole, and his disposition was extremely retiring. In private, Nora did not feel drawn to this member of her charge, but she paid him double attention from an inward feeling of guilt, and because Jim set a high value upon him. "'He's such a wise old chap,' Jim would say. "'Nobody knows what he's thinking of.' In her heart of hearts, Nora did not believe that mattered very much. But when the stables had been visited, and Bob's and Sirdar, Jim's neglected pony, interviewed, when Tate and Puck had had their breakfast bones, when wallabies and kangaroo had been inspected, with a critical eye to their water-tins, and the turtle had impassively received a praiseworthy attempt to draw him out, when the chicks had all been fed, and the guinea-pigs, unlike the leopard, had changed their spot for the day, there still remained the birds. The birds were a colony in themselves. There was a big aviary, large enough for little trees and big shrubs to grow in, where a happy family lived whose members included several kinds of honey-eaters, Queensland finches, blackbirds, and a dozen other tiny shy things which flitted quickly from bush to bush all day. They knew Nora, and, when she entered their home, would flutter down and perch on her head and shoulders, and look inquisitively for the flowers she always brought them. Sometimes Nora would wear some artificial flowers, by way of a joke. It was funny to see the little honey-eaters thrusting in their long beaks again and again, in search of the sweet drops they had learned to expect in flowers, and funnier still to watch the air of disgust with which they would give up the attempt. There were doves everywhere, not in cages, for they never tried to escape. Their soft coo murmured drowsily all around. There were pigeons, too, in a most elaborate pigeon coat, another effort of Jim's carpentering skill. These were as tame as the smaller birds, and, on Nora's appearance, would swoop down upon her in a cloud. They had done so once when she was mounted on Bob's, to the pony's very great alarm and disgust. He took to his heels promptly. "'I don't think he stopped for two miles,' Nora said. Since then, however, Bob's had grown used to the pigeons fluttering and circling round him. It was a pretty sight to watch them all together, child and pony half-hidden beneath their load of birds. The canaries had a cage to themselves, a very smart one, with every device for making canary life endurable in captivity. Certainly Nora's birds seemed happy enough, and the sweet songs of the canaries were delightful. I think they were Nora's favorites amongst her feathered flock. Finally there were two talkative members, Fudge the parrot and Old Caesar, a very fine white cockatoo. 
Fudge had been caught young, and his education had been of a liberal order. An apt pupil, he had picked up various items of knowledge, and had blended them into a whole that was scarcely harmonious. Bits of slang learned from Jim and the stockmen were mingled with fragments of hymns warbled by Mrs. Brown and sharp, curt orders delivered to dogs. A French swagman, who had hurt his foot and been obliged to camp for a few days at the homestead, supplied Fudge with several Parisian remarks that were very effective. Every member of the household had tried to teach him to whistle some special tune. Unfortunately, the lessons had been delivered at the same time, and the result was the most amazing jumble of melody, which Fudge delivered with an air of deepest satisfaction. As Jim said, you never know if he's whistling, God save the king, pop goes the weasel, or the warren o' the green, but it doesn't make any difference to Fudge's enjoyment. Caesar was a giant among cockatoos, and had a full sense of his own importance. He had been shot when very young, some stray pellets having found their way into his wing. Nora had found him fluttering helplessly along the ground, and had picked him up, sustaining a severe peck in doing so. It was, however, the first and last peck he ever gave Nora. From that moment he seemed to recognize her as a friend, and to adopt her as an intimate, marks of esteem he accorded to very few others. Nora had handed him to Jim on arriving at the house, a change which the bird resented by a savage attack on Jim's thumb. Jim was no hero. At the age of eleven he dropped the cockatoo like a hot coal. "'Great Caesar!' he exclaimed, sucking his thumb, and Caesar he was christened in that moment. After his recovery, which was a long and tedious process, Caesar showed no inclination to leave the homestead. He used to strut about the back yard and frequent the kitchen door, very much after the fashion of a house-dog. He was, indeed, as valuable as a watch-dog, for the appearance of any stranger was the signal for a volley of shrieks and chatter sufficient to alarm any household. However, Caesar's liberty had to be restricted, for he became somewhat of a menace to all he did not choose to care for, and his attacks on the ankles were no joking matter. To the dogs he was a constant terror. He hated all alike, and would go for Big Tate as readily as for cheerful little Puck, and not a dog on the place would face him. So, at last, a stand and a chain were bought for Caesar, and on his perch he lived in solitary splendor, while his enemies took good care to keep beyond his reach. Nora he always loved, and those whom he managed to bite, their number was large, used to experience thrills on seeing the little girl hold him close to her face while he rubbed his beak up and down her cheek. He tolerated Black Billy, who fed him, and was respectful to Mr. Linton, but he worshipped Mrs. Brown, the cook, and her appearance at the kitchen door, which he could see from his stand, caused an instant outbreak of cheers and chatter, varied by touching appeals to scratch cocky. His chief foe was Mrs. Brown's big yellow cat, who not only dared to share the adored one's affections, but was openly aggressive at times, and loved to steal the cockatoo's food. Caesar, on his perch, apparently wrapped in dreamless slumber, would in reality be watching the stealthy movements of Tim. 
the cat who would come scouting through the grass towards the tin of food just out of reach tim would lie down and feign sleep as deep as caesar's though every muscle in his body was tense with readiness for the sudden spring so they would remain perhaps many minutes tim's patience never gave out sometimes caesar's would and he would open his eyes and flap round on his perch shouting much bad bird language at the retreating tim but more often both remained motionless until the cat sprang suddenly at the food tin more often than not he was too quick for caesar and would drag the tin beyond reach of the chain before the bird could defend it in which case the wrath of the defeated was awful to behold but sometimes caesar managed to anticipate the leap and tim did not readily forget those distressful moments when the cockatoo had him by the fur with beak and claw he would escape showing several patches where his coat had been torn and remained in a state of dejection for two or three days during which battles were discontinued it took caesar almost as long to recover from the wild state of triumph into which his rare victories threw him End of chapter two